It's great to see you. I'm grateful to you. I'm so thankful for this church as our family gathered around turkey and ham yesterday. Um, we did what we do. We asked, what are we thankful for? And I was so thankful to hear my children say they are thankful for their church. As a pastor, do you know how thankful I am that my children are not resentful to the church that I pastor? So I hope that part of your thanksgiving was thanking God for your church. I'm thankful for your generosity and the way that you're responding and giving so that we can see the mission continue around here. Uh, interestingly, nobody at my table thanked God for their pastor, but that's okay. Um, hopefully, uh, you had a pastor you could thanksgiving for. I have a question for you. As you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, I have a question. How many of you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing on Tuesday morning, September the 11th, 2001. How many of you remember what was happening in your world while the towers in New York City were under attack and were falling? And of course, that raised all kinds of questions. It's like, who's responsible for this? And what does this mean? And why is this happening? That's what happens in the human heart when tragedy strikes and our world is falling apart and maybe even the sky is falling. Maybe some of you can identify some ways that your world has fall, fallen apart recently. And we can just look at natural disasters. If you live on the East Coast, there's hurricanes. If you live in the Midwest, there's blizzards. If you live in the Southwest, there's tornadoes. If you live in the West, there's wildfires out of control. And then there's more personal things. Uh, you know, there's terminal illnesses and there's cancer cancer and there's Alzheimer's and there's diabetes and there's, there's Alzheimer's and then we think about our children and some of them are prodigals and, and then we think about what's going on in other places. There, there's just, there's a lot of things that can provoke questions of why, right? Even in some of the safest places, some things that you wouldn't even think you would have to worry about. I saw, an, I saw a news headline this week that was troubling to me. I'll read it to you. The, the, the news headline from the, the Seattle Times reads this, falling cow smashes van near Manson. Of all the things that you thought you didn't have to worry about, a cow falling on you is one more thing that you should add to the list. This is a real story. It says that uh, Shyland County Fire Chief says a couple were lucky they weren't killed by a cow that fell from a cliff and smashed their minivan. Uh, the fire chief says that it missed uh, killing them by a matter of inches as they drove on Highway 150 near Manson. The 600-pound cow fell about 200 feet and landed on the hood of the minivan carrying Charles Everson Jr. and his wife Linda from Westland, Michigan, get this, who were in the area celebrating their one-year anniversary. I mean, they just... They were just going there to have some peaceful enjoyment, celebrating peaceful times, and a cow falls on their minivan just when you thought you were safe, right? Now listen, there's a lot of things to be worried about. One of the things that we're going to see in the scripture here this morning, Jesus is going to pull some headlines right out of the Jerusalem Post in the first century and tell us about how we can process tragedy. Anybody interested in that? Let's begin reading here in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
And he answered them, do you think, let's just stop right there, that, that's a great question. Do you think, I mean, come on, even in church, because you're supposed to think. Jesus wants you to think. When tragedy is taking place, it should provoke God-centered thinking. What does this mean? What does God think about this? How should I respond? And Jesus asked the questions. Do you think? He says, do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered? in this way. And then he says in verse three, no. In other words, you're thinking wrongly. The default way that human beings think about tragedy is not God's way of thinking. So Jesus is trying to correct our thinking. He's trying to correct our theology about suffering, about sin, about tragedy, about death, judgment, perishing and repentance. Did you know so much was wrapped up in, the, in what he was saying? That's what we're gonna learn about all that this morning. He says, no, he says, do you, do you, uh, he says in verse three, do, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, underline the word repent in verse three, you will all likewise perish. Underline perish, we're gonna come around that again soon. Verse four, Jesus rips another headline from the pages of the newspaper and he says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Verse five, he repeats verse three, no, not thinking right, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus tells a story. Verse six, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he, became, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. You know, I know you don't go get your fruit at the fig tree. You go to Martin's or Aldi or Walmart or whatever. Imagine going and the produce aisle is empty and you've been going for three years. Don't you think you try to find another place to shop? That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, uh, he says, listen, if, when I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up uh, the ground? Verse eight, and he answered, he said, sir, let, let it alone this year also. Give me more time until I dig it, uh, dig around it and put on it manure. Then verse nine, he says, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. So he appeals for more time. What does all of this mean? Notice the two headlines that Jesus mentions here. First, there's an unstable leader uh, who is abusing his power and killing the Galilean worshipers. Let me set it up here for you. There was one place that the Galilee, Galileans, these were the, the, the citizens of Galilee. They were primarily Jewish, God-fearing people. They believed the Bible, they believed the Old Testament, so they did what the Old Testament tells you to do. They were bringing sacrifices to the place of worship in Jerusalem. And apparently as they were sacrificing to God, praying their prayers, getting as close to God as they could possibly get, doing everything right, Pilate, do you remember him? Most of you know Pilate is the one who sentenced Jesus to, the, to death on the cross, remember Pilate? Well, Pilate was this 
puppet governor that the Roman government had installed in Galilee, and his job was to oppress the people so that they wouldn't create an uprising to overthrow the Roman government. So Pilate randomly and periodically would do something to terrorize God's people, and apparently this is one of the things he did. He showed up at the sacrifice, he slashed their throats, he drained their blood, and along with the blood of this animal sacrifices, he mixed their blood and he offered it to God in mock worship. Tragedy, senseless, injustice, yes, we would all agree. And Jesus looks at these people who are trying to make sense of it and Jesus says, yeah, let me help you interpret that. Unless you repent, you're gonna perish likewise. So that's the lesson you're supposed to learn from this. And then the second lesson, the second headline that he finds there in the Jerusalem Post or something, it says this, an unstable tower falls without warning, killing innocent bystanders. And so you can imagine these people, again, that tower was near a very beautiful place, a place people would go for refreshing and healing. There was the pool of Siloam and apparently there's a tower next to it and apparently engineering back in the day wasn't as great as it was today, but we find out towers fall in every century apparently. So this tower falls and kills 18 innocent bystanders, probably some very young children with families and tragedy, tragedy. And they're trying to make sense of it. And Jesus says, it is right for you to ask the question why, but our answers are often so wrong. We ask the questions, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do some people have all the luck? Why do seemingly random injustices occur in the world? Why is it that some people just, their lives are filled with pain and suffering and other people's aren't? Why are some of the godliest people we know facing the most difficulty in their lives? You know, in order to reconcile these twos, if we were writing the story, this is the way I would have written the story. The headline would have read, a tower falls on Pilate. That's the way I would have resolved it, right? I think that would have made the world a better place, right? But that's not what happens. And so he's telling us there's these two wrong conclusions that we can come to. First of all, we default think and we think, well, those who suffer must have done something wrong. I mean, those people that the tower crushed them. They probably had some secret sin, you know, and they were probably doing something that made God angry and, and that tower fell on them. Because our default way of thinking is um, their sin was worse than ours because good things are happening to us and so we must be good people. God God's a good God who does good things for good people. There, there's some theology for you. And Jesus is saying, nope. That's not the right way to think about God. We think that somehow their sin was extraordinarily horrible. And Jesus is teaching us, no, all of your sin is ordinarily horrible. It's just, we're just all sinners. And then he goes on to, to confront the fact that we think if we live right, God will treat us right. You ever said that? It's like you, you win the lottery or you, know, you get a pay raise or something or you get a girlfriend and you think, I must be living right because God does good things for good people. That is not the right way of thinking. That is a wrong conclusion. Here's another wrong conclusion. It's to think that God has done something wrong. Because we think, well, God is all powerful, right? He could have prevented 
Pilate from killing those people. He could have prevented the tower falling, but he didn't. And if he's all powerful and he didn't prevent it, then he must not be all loving because a loving God wouldn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Wrong conclusion. Jesus is like, nope, that's not the right way to think. Or we think, well, well, sure, God is loving, he loves all people, but he, just not be, he must not be powerful enough to prevent bad things from happening. And so we get these wrong ideas and come to wrong conclusions about God. So how do we respond? What does Jesus want us to say? He says it twice, verse three, verse five, it's the same verse, it says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's consider the word all. What's Jesus teaching? He's teaching us that we are all sinners and all sin is horribly offensive to God and all sinners will perish unless all sinners repent and all sinners are graciously given time to repent and all sinners deserve to perish under the power of God's judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, nope, unless you repent, you're all gonna perish. In other words, those people got what we deserve and we're all gonna get it unless we repent. Consider the word likewise here. He's like, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Does that mean we're all gonna be crushed by a tower? Does that mean we're all gonna be slaughtered by Pilate? No, what he's saying is, these people that were crushed, these people that were slaughtered, none of them woke up that morning thinking, this will be my last day, I should prepare to die. It was a surprise, it was sudden. Jesus wants to think about the immediacy of our death. Isn't that a cheerful thought on Thanksgiving weekend? Glad you came to church. You know, sometimes you come to church to learn how to live. And there's other times you come to church to learn how to die. If you came to church to learn how to live this morning, you're gonna be disappointed because I'm trying to teach you how to die, which is my main responsibility. And if you learn how to live, but you don't learn how to die, then you've missed the whole point of why you lived in the first place. Jesus is inviting you to contemplate the immediacy of your terminal illness, which is sin, and unless you repent, you will perish under the power of God's judgment. We all deserve what these people got. The reason that we haven't gotten it yet is not because we're good, it's because he is good and he's giving us time to repent. And then there's this word, perish. Let's consider that word, here's the definition of the word. To perish means that we would experience everlasting separation from God after death and that applies to all those who will not repent of sin. That is a universal reality for every human being that God has given life. We all have a terminal illness. We all have an expiration date stamped in our heart. We can't see it, but one day, we will stand before God to give an account of our life and unless we repent, we will live outside of the presence of God in a place the Bible describes as a lake of fire 
a place where God will settle the account of our moral rebellion against him. And Jesus says, you need to wrap your mind around the thought of perishing. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to think about dying, much less perishing. But we need to understand dying is an inevitability. Perishing is optional. This is good news. You say, finally, give me some good news. Here's the good news. You don't have to perish. You will die unless Jesus comes back. That was last week's message, right? Live with a sense of anticipation, like fat nugget, right? You're all here for that. If you weren't here for that, you gotta go back and listen to that one, right? So we should all live with a sense of anticipation that Fat Nugget has in the nursery right now waiting for Pastor Stephen to get back there and rescue him from perishing in the nursery, right? But if Jesus doesn't come back, dying is inevitable, but perishing is optional. Here's the good news. If you repent of sin, this world is as close as you will ever get to hell. If you do not repent, this world is as close as you will ever get to heaven. We need to contemplate what it means to perish. Now, here's the good news. Almost every time in the New Testament, the word perish is used. In the same verse, an alternative is offered to perishing. Let me show it to you. Here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. In other words, people have been talking about Jesus coming back and judgment, and it's like, yeah, it's like 2,000 years. I'm not quite sure he's gonna get here. He's, I just don't think this is ever gonna happen. And that for that reason, we don't repent. And Peter's warning here is like, listen, do not mistake the patience of God with the slowness of God. God is purposefully patient, not wishing any should perish. It is not God's desire for anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you see the two options? Perish, don't like that option? Then repent, better option. Do you understand the patience involved in how God is giving us this opportunity? We all kind of laugh at the guy on the, the sidewalk that wears the sandwich board that says repent or burn. That is not funny. That is the reality for every individual. Repent or perish, turn or burn. There's another obscure verse in the, old, in the New Testament. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the alternative? Eternal perishing or eternal life. You don't like the thought of eternally perishing? You might wanna believe in Jesus so that you can have eternal life. He continues in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter one, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are 
perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see the alternative? Perishing, being saved. And it all hinges on the command to repent. But we don't want to repent. You know why? Because most people in here, the towers are not falling on us and Pilate's not slaughtering us. Most of the people in here, life's going really good, pretty smooth, especially compared to people that we just read about, right? And here's the danger that Jesus is, Jesus is speaking to people whose lives are going well. They haven't been crushed and they haven't been slaughtered. And Jesus is saying, that's when you need to sense the urgency. But we lose the sense of urgency to repent because things are going good. We must not deserve to perish. We must be doing something good because life is going good. And that's when we are at the risk, the most risk of perishing because we don't think we deserve it. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived back in the 19th century. And uh, he, he had a little something to say about when life's going good, he says this. He says, I would venture to say that the greatest blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. Sickness has frequently been of more use to the saints of God than health has. If some men that I know could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would be God's grace it, it would be by God's grace to mellow them marvelously. Do you know what he's saying? Sickness is a gift. Suffering is a gift. Tragedy is a gift to wake you up to the reality of your mortality. One day we will stand before God and if we do not repent, we will perish. And so for those of us that life's going great, we must beware that we think we are doing good because life's going good. So what does it mean to repent? This is the, this is the crux of the matter, right? He says you gotta repent, you got to. The only way to avoid perishing is repenting. Repentance is a pivot, all right? How many of you ever played basketball? Raise your hand if you played basketball, all right? How many of you too short to play basketball? You never should have been on the court, but they let you on there anyway, and they made you the point guard, okay? So I'm identifying with point guard people. I'm, I'm with you, okay? We'll have a little support group after church. We can pray for one another and recover from the scars of trying to play basketball with big people, all right? So here's the deal. When you are a point guard, you have to learn the skill of pivoting. Because in basketball, the rules say you can move one foot. The other one is called the pivot foot, okay? Is it, are you familiar with this concept? All right, let me demonstrate it for you, all right? I'll show you my incredible athletic ability up here, okay? So let's pretend I'm on a basketball court. This is the pivot foot, all right? And I, I have the ball, but there is a large, real basketball player coming at me, okay? He wants my ball. This is what I'm allowed to do. Did you see that incredible skill just demonstrated for you? Not only can he preach, he can pivot. Did you see that? Wow, all right. Now what just happened in the process? I turned my back 
on the person that was trying to steal the ball. Some of you didn't get it the first time. Let me show you again. You see that? Now, here's the deal. Every person in this room was born into this world with our backs against God. We, we were going our own way. We wanted to be our own God. We thought we were God. The reason we thought we were God is because we thought we could control everything and we wanted everybody to worship us. Isn't that the definition of God? He controls everything and everybody should worship him. And we started acting like God. We think everybody in the, in, in the family should be thinking like me. Everybody should be serving me. Everybody should be bowing down to me. Everybody should be praising me, giving me all kinds of praise and glory, right? And by the way, I'm, I'm gonna control your life in the process. I'm gonna tell you what to do and I want everybody to do it my way. And then you, after a while, you figure out you can't control anything and nobody's really impressed with you. And you realize you're not God. And at that point, you have an option. You can and repent of your self-righteousness, thinking that you are God, acting like you are God, and controlling everything, you turn your back on that self-righteousness and you turn your back on the sin of thinking you are God and you turn your face toward him. And once you pivot, then you take a step and you take another step and you begin following instead of trying to lead that's what it means to repent. And Jesus says, until or unless you pivot, you will perish. If you don't pivot, you'll perish. No pivot, you're gonna perish. Question, when did that happen for you? It happens at a point. Repentance and pivoting is the first step in following Jesus. It's not a process. It is a point in which you turn your back on sin and you turn your face toward Christ and you follow. For me, I didn't grow up going to church. I met the Lord when I was 15 years old and I realized this word repentance or perishing, I began to contemplate that. I was, didn't want to perish and so I repented, I pivoted and I've been following ever since. Not perfectly, but increasingly, I'm inviting you this morning to pivot, to repent so you won't perish. God has been so good to give you an opportunity and to somehow drag you here against your will. I know some of your family members brought you here because you showed up for Thanksgiving and they said it's not an option. You're going to church and you hear this message and now you got to make a decision. Repent or perish. Turn or burn. When have you pivoted? You say, I've been very religious. I've been very spiritual. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about turning your back on self-righteousness, which could involve a lot of religious activity, a lot of ceremonial religion, good behavior. You turn your back on all of that, and then you surrender to follow Christ. But it's not only a pivot. Repentance is also a posture. I said it happened at a point but it also begins the process where repentance is the overflow of your life. It becomes the fruit of your life. Do you remember the story about the fig tree? Jesus like, I keep showing up for three years, I'm inspecting the fig tree, there's no fruit, which means there is no life. And Jesus is saying, you know what the fruit is? The fruit is repentance. And Jesus is looking at some of your lives and you're just like, I'm a fig tree, there's no figs. You're saying, I'm a Christian. Jesus is saying, show me the repentance. And his friend says, how about one more year? Let's give him more time. If there's not visible, sweet repentance, there's no salvation. 
The fruit of repentance is good behavior. The good behavior is not the root. The good behavior is the fruit. Once you've pivoted, all of a sudden you've got new life to do things you never could before. It changes your attitude, it changes your responses, it changes your vocabulary, it changes your whole mission for life, it changes your whole reason for living. That's what repentance does. It is a change of mind that produces a change in direction. It's a pivot and it's a posture before God to live in humility. But we don't wanna think we need to repent because we think we're too good. Listen, there's no one so bad they can't repent. There's no one so good they must not repent. What motivates that? It's understanding this. The tower of God's judgment that should have fallen on us has fallen on Jesus at the cross so that it wouldn't fall on us in eternity. The tower of God's judgment fell on Jesus so it wouldn't fall on those who repent. The cross is the proof that Jesus doesn't do good. The cross is the proof that God doesn't do good things for good people and doesn't do bad things to bad people because Jesus lived the best life and suffered the worst death so that the person who has lived the worst life won't suffer the worst death, eternal perishing. And Jesus offers the free gift of God's grace to anyone who would repent. When has that happened for you? Did it happen as a child? Has it happened as an adult? Is there a point at which you declared Christ is Lord, I am repenting of sin, and then the public act of baptism showing that there's been regeneration? I wanna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. It's a heavy thing to contemplate words like perishing, to contemplate words like repentance, to contemplate your own death. But every time we see tragedy around us, it is an opportunity to realize we deserve no better treatment. All sinners, all deserving of the crushing judgment of God to fall on us and yet it fell on Jesus so that those that believe and follow him could escape perishing eternally separated from God. If you've never done that, if you've never taken your first step, if you've never pivoted to Christ, I wanna invite you to do it right now. You do it in your heart before God. You simply, from your heart, say to him, thank you for enduring that cross that I deserved. I repent. I turn from my sin. I turn from my self-righteousness. I've tried to live as if I was God. I've tried to make my own rules. I can't even follow my own rules. 
I want to submit myself to your rules, your word. I repent, I turn. There are others of us here as Christians. The reality is, is that tree that's supposed to be filled with visible evidence of repentance is pretty bare. And there are certain sins that Christ has been convicting you of by his spirit. He's pressing into your heart. Maybe it's being unkind, unloving. Maybe it's being immoral, unjust. Maybe it's things you've neglected to do. You're holding on to your rights. Maybe it's refusing to surrender. Repent. Demonstrate the fruits of repentance. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And then Mike is gonna lead us in a song. And I wanna invite you as we stand in just a moment, as we sing that song, if you need to come and just repent before the Lord, maybe you need to come and pivot. And this is the moment you take your first step toward Christ. You embrace the cross, you embrace grace, you get a fresh start, a new beginning. I wanna invite you to come. You can come, our pastors and elders and the team is up here. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love to give you a new believer's kit, help you take a next step. I wanna invite you to do that even as we sing. I'm gonna pray right now. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word that so vividly confronts our self-will, our self-righteousness. God, we do grieve and mourn when we see tragedy around us and we have a ton of questions but the answers so many times fall so short God I thank you for the reminder that you've treated us far better than we deserve and I pray that in this moment you would call many to repentance do what I cannot do persuade I pray, God, that um, in this moment, there would be many people that would take a step out of the crowd into the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? If you need to come to one of these and pray, you do that.